0: what's up ladies and gents welcome to the debrief with the ones and only here to talk about our shift how it's going what we could have maybe done differently
1: the ugly the truth it's all here let's put on the table baby yeah i'm excited today we're gonna focus on how to stand up for yourself as a nurse especially as a travel nurse because as travel nurses we're on the bottom of the totem pole people like to dump stuff on us because we're sometimes there to be dumped on. You know, yeah, it sucks. We're, we're the moving chess piece
0: of this hospital. We sometimes float twice a shift. It gets really annoying. Mm. And even making a schedule, man, we're at the bottom of the total pole where we just get the scraps. So yeah. staff gets a schedule, the peer dm staff gets a schedule, then the travelers just fill in the blanks. And to be honest, our schedule hasn't been the best. Horrible. uh Going back and forth with that. Honestly, this is a perfect episode of standing up for yourself because I just had a little. A light bulb moment here before the, the things that I want to talk about. Look what happened with our schedule process. So we have a group chat with a bunch of travelers in our hospital. And I recommend you starting a group as well if you can just to kind of collaborate together. We have a very bad scheduler. So what happens is we have schedules that we don't like. So as travelers, we like to do shift swaps. And then what this hospital wanted to do is they wanted to inhibit that from happening because we've been changing shifts too much so all the travelers heard about it they rallied they messaged their uh, managers mm. their uh, recruiters in the agency to see what's going on and why is this policy happening so what ended up happening is we stood up for ourselves and they struck that
1: down mm. it's it's interesting they bring that up because I'm, I'm thinking about it now and it's like the scheduler doesn't take any care to do our schedule or anyone's schedule whatsoever and now what's going on is we're doing these switch the shift swaps and we're adding work to his life technically because he's the one that has to take care of these these swaps so it's almost i don't want to say it's payback but it's almost like karma in a sense hey you don't care about our needs as travelers and you're just gonna wishy-washy do the schedule without putting any effort into it then we're gonna find swaps we're gonna do swaps so it, it comes full circle you don't want to put into effort proactively now you have to put in put in the effort post-schedule because we're not getting what we requested and we're going to find a way to get it.
0: Right. Even even looking at this background, right? We're recording in the Airbnb because we're moving locations. Our house is getting currently fumigated. We reached out to the scheduler a couple weeks before. We left the multiple voice memos. We said, hey, we're getting our house fumigated for three four days. Can you move our schedule at the beginning of the week? That'd be great. There's... Fifteen plus travelers, they could totally make this switch happen. Of course, we're working on the days we're getting our house from to get it. So screw you, bro. You're an asshole, dude. Yeah, (laughs) low key. You're you're not fair. Uh, But anyways, going into standing up for yourself, that was one situation. So I floated to a dou step down unit, and of course they're making assignments, trying to figure things out. So you know the staff have pretty decent assignments, and I had a assignment with crazy movement if i didn't have the charge to help me out i have no idea how i would manage so i had one patient that within 20 minutes of my shift he went down to ir he had a uh, cholecystitis and he went to go uh, get a drain placed so as that was happening they wanted me to uh, get an er patient Mm, okay so so that was on the board and within that 20 minute time frame they also told me i'm going to get an icu transfer downgrade Mm -hmm. So I have only one patient, technically, and I'm going to have three total. But both of those are admissions, one patient's leaving. And I'm like, guys, like, that's not fair. Right away, I went to the charge, and they wanted me to move assignments, and they wanted to give me a patient that um, just passed away, and the family's in the room. Mm. And I'm just like, well, I don't know if that's more work to me, because now the family's going to be there asking questions. I have to be uh, advocate for that, fill out paperwork. I have to... Bag the patient, as sad as that sounds, and then I'm probably going to get an ER. So I'm only going to delay that. So how come you don't switch up the assignment to make it more fair where maybe everybody gets a swap? But anyways, so within those two hours from like 8 to 10 uh, p.m., I got the patient from ER. As that was happening, literally my IR patient came back from the procedure. So I had the charge of the breaker trying to help me out while I'm settling another patient. That ER patient was mucus plugging out on BiPAP, was suctioning her out. And then within 15 minutes, I had another ICU patient come in. That is completely not safe. Mm. Like, I'll be a workhorse, and I got it done, and I hustled, and it's crazy. Uh, I can't even recall if I floated during that time. Who knows? If I floated, geez, that was too much. But actually, I think I actually ended up staying the full 12 hours on that unit. But it's just not fair to be thrown around like that where – I understand that there's nurses that are coming in from the previous night and they want the same assignment. That doesn't mean that the acuity is going to change and maybe as a charge nurse you have to adjust the assignment to make it work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Just because there's two, three nurses, they have the same patient, and then one nurse is gonna be struggling and swimming or sinking in this case, like that's not fair. You have to create that balance.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely I didn't have too much trouble in the, the in this rotation with getting the like Decent occupations, but there was one event that comes to mind. I had a DKA patient and one empty bed, and when I came on shift, I was treating DKA, and then like around 7:20, uh, they, they were calling a report from the from the ER, and I was told I'm getting another DKA patient, and I'm like, you know, in, in Chicago, I would have easily taken two DKA patients, but here in California, you have a little bit of more wiggle room and you know room to say. Things. Give so, me a princess. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, hey, talking my charge. I'm like, hey, I'm getting another DK patient. It might be a little too much because what if somebody was hypoglycemic or we have really bad, bad labs uh, coming in to a DK patient? So I tried to kind of finagle my way into not getting to DK patient because there was, there's, so this hospital isn't super acute, which is kind of it's very nice. So sometimes our patients in the ICU aren't you could say technically ICU patients, sometimes we have tele patients on Total there, flows. they need to uh, be transferred out, that they got better or step down patients. So I was like, you know, it's not, I was like, it's not really fair that you know this nurse gets two step down patients and I get two DKA's because I know I can handle it, but just imagine if they both go hypoglycemia at the same time, something like that, or their labs are off, their K is low or their mag is low. it could could be it could be an issue so i kind of convinced them to kind of give me one DOU patient and one dka because you really you really don't know DKA. it could be a very high acuity case because they could be really really sick and their labs might be all off or a dka could be a walkie-talkie patient that you're just trying to stabilize their blood sugars it could go both ways but if you throw in the protocol that they use where it's like you're always on this same unit like for example i had a dk patient they were on six units every hour and it was a two-bag system. So the only thing we're titrating is the fluids. You're getting either, uh, I think it's D10 with potassium or 0.9 with potassium to kind of help regulate their blood sugars and prevent them from going too low. So if your blood sugar is anywhere below 200, they're getting 250 of the D10. If their blood sugar is between 200 and 250, they're getting half D10, half 0.9. And if they're above Two fifty, they're getting just the, the the point out with the with the potassium, and I don't like this protocol to be honest. Right. And
0: the fluids might change depending on what's going on because yeah. I had a patient on uh, same thing DK, and it was on half normal saline with ten uh, with ten milli equivalents of K versus mm. twenty, and then D ten. So it, it's it's a little bit weird how they do it, but I guess yeah. it's safe. Yeah, in, we should have an th- about
1: different DK protocols because to be honest, I prefer the one where you titrate insulin. Because I feel like you're doing more, and it's, and you're pushing less in, less insulin, and or you're pushing more insulin when you need it, instead of maybe just having a one unit base one unit base of like six or five, and just waiting to hopefully it normalizes. Because I I had that I had a recent patient, not the same shift, but a different shift where she was on five units, and her sugar was coming down super quick. Quick, it went from like three fifty five to like two eighty something. Then it was. 214 then it was like 156 and then when it hit six o'clock so that same patient that dealt with that's the same patient the same patient i'm talking about right now that patient was on two back system with uh, just the set unit rate so her blood sugar would go down real quick and then the protocol is once the blood sugar is under i think 200 or 250 you stop the insulin drip and then you check the blood sugar every hour for two hours And then you check it again four hours later. So when I turn that insulin drip off and I gave her the sub Q insulin, an hour later her blood sugar went from like 131 to 86. And I was like, Oh shit, she's probably gonna be hypoglycemic when I check it again. And I checked it again the second hour where insulin was was off, it was forty seven. So you're you know, if you were on the other protocol where titrating the insulin when she's in, the, in that 100 range, the 200 range, you would down titrate it. But here you, you don't. So it's a little bit unfortunate, and I feel like it throws people more into hypoglycemia because yeah. you're not down trading it, and you just keep getting that, that, five, minutes, that five, five minutes or five minutes or the six or the nine, depending on how bad their sugar is. And you're never really going down on insulin until you get that threshold and then you're just stopping it. But, right. but realize that you still have these insulin running through your bloodstream.
0: Yeah, that, that's one thing I just thought about when you're mentioning that is I'm not sure how insulin gets exactly excreted. But if it's through the kidneys or whatever and your creatinine is elevated, that's going to take a little bit longer to excrete. So now you're over, over flooded with insulin and you might have, like you said, these hypoglycemic
1: events. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting. So uh, also while we're in DKA, I'll just mention real quick uh, the anion gap because for some reason I was thinking to myself, I'm like, what the hell is the anion gap? Like you know how you sometimes have those brain farts as a nurse yeah. where like you knew it last week, but for some reason you can't remember it this week. I was trying to figure out like, what the hell is the anion gap? So I, ha- I had to look it up. So basically anion gap shows how acidic your, your your blood is. So a high anion gap means you're more acidic. A low anion gap means you're more more basic. Just a fun fact. I was like trying to figure out like anion gap. Why the hell do we look at anion gap? CO2, I know why we look at CO2 because we want less CO2, we don't want an acidic environment, but I'm like I couldn't figure out what the hell the anion gap was. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's just so much in the medical field. Like there's different specialties of doctors and as nurses you just have to know everything and figure things out so I yeah. totally get it when that when that happens mm-hmm. man. Uh, I'm just gonna share another experience that I had less about patients and more about just standing up for yourself And before I talk about this scenario I just wanted to mention whatever I expressed on the show as far as how unfair it was, I told the charge nurse about that after the event everything settled down because it's not about what you went through and how difficult it was it's to create that safe environment so the next nurse doesn't get screwed over or has that same situation because I was able to handle it and go out my way and have the patients be safe, but maybe the next nurse might feel overwhelmed, might miss something, Mm -hmm. an error might occur. And it's funny that it happened. Now I just realized that I did have a little mistake. I hung, you know how you're doing potassium, you have to do like 40 MEQs and it's 10 MEQs every hour in the bag? I was running around so fast that I didn't scan the bag. I just hung the potassium. And then another nurse was helping me out, and she was supposed to hang up potassium. And she asked me if I hung the other bag earlier. Mm. I'm like, I did. Oh. And then I look at the computer. I'm like, oh, I didn't scan it. I'll do that later. Mm. So, yeah, it just becomes unsafe because you're juggling so much. Yeah. In this scenario, I floated from who knows what floor, because we float so much, to oncology. Mm. And usually what happens is at 10 o'clock, you find out if you have to float, 10 p.m., By 11 to 11.30, they want you on that unit. But it becomes busy sometimes where you're finishing up meds. Something happens with the patient. Maybe you got admission in the beginning of your shift. You're trying to finish charting because there's no way you're going to chart on other patients in a different unit. So I always have a rule of thumb. I'm not going to leave this unit until I finish charting. I show up there at like 11.45 p.m. And then the nurse says, I got to go home. I have to be up in the morning. Hands me a piece of paper and leaves. And gives me these four patients and i was just mind blown guys i was baffled i'm like how is this possible this has never occurred to me how is this even legal right for me it's just more about mutual respect as a nurse just give me the damn report because this is just something that we do it was like an old school filipino nurse and just handed me the paper straight business hasta la i'm like damn and right away i went to the charge i'm like hey like uh, I'm okay with doing this because, you know, I'll look up a patient on the Mar, look at a note. We were critical care. We could figure it out. It's not too bad. But it's just the efficacy and the respect mm-hmm. of that. And the charge nurse told me that, that they didn't want her to go into overtime. So she had to already leave mm-hmm. before midnight. Business. And I'm just like, what about patient safety? Isn't that our priority in the hospital? Patient-centered care, a.k.a. And you just dip like that. So that was just rude to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to stand up as much as I can for myself there, but I don't know if that mistake is going to happen again, but I just say that's not fair and that's not safe. Hopefully someone heard me. I didn't go above and beyond and go to the supervisor and complain, but Mm -hmm. the charge nurse heard me on that case. And it's just, yeah, it's just unsafe, especially when you have like the little things that you have to like figure out with what's happening with the patient or, you know, one thing I hate is like wound care sometimes. Sometimes I just want the nurse to tell me what's up with the wound, when it has to be changed, what goes where. Sometimes the notes are hard to find, little things like that.
1: So yeah, or even for example, if the nurse said not empty the Foley, you're like, hey, did this patient just pee 500 mLs, or was this already here? Yeah. Or imagine that patient being being too low in suction, and there's like 500 of, of of bloody sputum in that. You're like, hey, did this happen before she left? She charted that there's. That she kind of for 300, but there's 500 in the chamber. Did that 500 just come out, or should I subtract that 300? Like something simple like that, where you're just like, damn, you don't know. Because yeah. if it's 500 out in the last half hour because because she left, that's a lot. That's a lot of volume. Yeah. You know, so it's like little things like that, you can't, you can't ask because you got to charge nurse, but. Or what are they gonna say? Is it charted? Yeah, but yeah, it's charted, but it's not emptied. So who the hell knows? Did it come out right now, or did it come out during the shift? Who the hell
0: knows? It just it's just patient safety. Or sometimes there's a suction canister, and you just put a tape, and they don't mark the line. You're trying to figure out what your what your output. Should you call the doctor? Is this really 500, and it's a something to worry about, and all those things. Mm. Even though you're talking about the lower limit of suction, there's a handful of times I caught nurses having a continuous suction. Mm. I don't know what it what it does. Maybe it messes up the K and some other things. But usually, what I do is I flip, and then after the report, I tell them like, "Hey, by the way,
1: this has to be hooked up to low intermittent suction." Mm. Low key, if there's a lot coming out, I put it on continuous. If there's a lot coming out, this is my thing. My, yeah, yeah. It's the way, uh, just the way I practice patient care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Practicing outside the scope, huh? <laughs> yeah, never. Yeah. It's little. It's still low, you know, but it's, it's continuous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of output. You don't want them to uh, yeah. to vomit. Yeah. But I had another interesting case. Uh, this patient had myelodysplastic syndrome and i was looking this up, up online and there's only about 200,000 cases of this, ish- this issue in the united states so this is a really rare condition where well it's a group of disorders that cause you to improperly form blood cells so it affects your your um, white blood cells it affects your cells that help with clotting your red blood cells so you get anemic you get thrombocytopenia you get leuko leukocytosis leukocytopenia leukocytopenia so it affects all so all your blood cells all your all your major blood cells are for some reason immature and the only way you could kind of survive this you can't really survive this so the only way you could treat this is with is with stem cell transplants and there's no cure for this it's basically once you get diagnosed with it you have a little bit of time to to live it depends it could be four months it could be a couple of years just depends on how well this stem cell transplant is is uh, it's working so when i got this patient uh he came in the same day i i got him when he was already intubated they intubated him a couple hours before i got him and it's crazy because he just slowly started deteriorating i think, I think he survived like four or five days on the unit and when i had him he was still decent i had him on some light sedation he was able to follow commands open his eyes make his needs known all that kind of stuff i took him down for ultrasound of the chest and pelvis just to because he was also had affection going on they weren't really sure what his affection was we are trying to check all the boxes so i took him down for that and like i lowered him a little bit i had him flat and he was descending from me so we kind of rushed in and stuff, but Every day, he started deteriorating more and more. So I had him about two days later, and he wasn't following commands anymore. He was getting encephalopathy. Ensepal- ensep- and then my last shift, so that was about four days from the initial time that I had him, uh, he was gone. He passed, wow. passed away. So he literally passed away within four days. And when I had him, he was completely with it. Two days later, but not not following commands nothing and then four days later uh already passed away so wow. it was really crazy he had some crazy infection they couldn't figure out what it was and then he also had this myelodysplastic syndrome where he was not able to form blood cells properly so right. his he was getting attacked from all sides and there's no way his body was able to compensate because anemia you're not perfusing your organs well you have leukocytopenia where you can't find these infections and now you have thrombocytopenia, where if you have a bleed somewhere, you can't stop bleeding. It's wild, man. Unfortunately, man. Yeah. So that's a
0: crazy disease.
1: Yeah, I was told that his kid came in to visit and he didn't say a word. He just saw his dad and he was completely silent the whole time he was there and just like, in complete shock. Wow. And his dad died four days later, just like that. Early fifties. I got chills. Yeah, it's tough, man. Some of the stuff we see, man. Yeah.
0: All right, brother, let's wrap this one up. Hope Sorry. you guys enjoyed this debrief where we shared our experiences and how to stand up for yourself as a travel nurse. And then any nurse, if you feel like something is unfair, something is unfa- unsafe, speak up. Don't just tolerate it because it's not just about you. It's about the next shift, the next nurse, and overall this the patient safety.
1: Thanks so much, guys. See you on the next episode. Bye-bye.